Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. November 8th has come and gone, but control of Congress is still up in the air. While the predicted red wave failed to materialize, Republicans may yet take control of both chambers from the Democrats. Policy directors Will Dunham, Nadim Alshami, Brian McGuire, and Carmen Sita Wonder, representing experience from the four corners of congressional leadership, come together again to discuss the possibility of the GOP taking the majority in the House for the first time since 2018, Democrats being favored to win the 50 seats they need in the Senate, and what this means for both parties moving forward in the 118th Congress and beyond. Brownstein's strategic advisor and former Alaska Senator Mark Begich moderates the conversation. Well, welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. It seems like it was just a few days ago we were doing a pre-election podcast on what we thought was going to happen. Well, now we're doing a podcast on the post-election and kind of what happened after the election. And really, the election is not over yet. So I'm joined again with our esteemed panel from the Brownstein team. First, let me introduce Nadine El-Shami, 25 years in Congress, beginning his career in the Senate and ending his career as chief of staff of the House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi. Also joined by Brian McGuire, who served in a Senate-confirmed position as the Department of Treasury's Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs, and has finished his career as a longtime aide and chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Also joined with us is Carmesita Wonder, who served as the director of the Senate Subcommittee on Housing, Transportation, Community Development, and served as a principal advisor uh, the Senate Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs for Senator Chuck Schumer. And last, and our newest member, Will Dunham, joined the Brownstein government relations team recently and served seven years for Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. What a great team. Once again, we're back. Now the, the dust is not fully settled. So let me just start right off and get right into it and ask our panel Did Trump have an effect? Was there a Trump uh, impact, positive or negative, on this election? And where's the dust going to settle in a few weeks? Who wants to take the first shot at that question? Nadine? Sure. I mean, I think that's probably a a question that uh, Republicans and Democrats agree on. Yes, (laughs) he did. Uh, um, And we saw the impacts in, in Pennsylvania, for example, almost in Wisconsin. I mean, he's he's coming out has helped uh, Democrats for sure. Brian, let me ask you. You know, your former Boston always had the warmest relationship with Trump. What 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 do you think is going to happen? Is there a long lasting impact that is going to be in future elections? Well, I think focusing on Tuesday's election, Nadim is right. Trump had a seriously uh, depressing effect for Republican candidates not only the candidates who ran, but I think candidates who could have run but didn't in states like New Hampshire, Arizona. And, you know, we had a lot of nominees who who ran in states that could have been competitive but weren't. So I think candidates who kind of carried that Trump brand around with them really, really suffered. I think Pennsylvania is a really notable example of that. And candidates who were sort of independent of that brand, think about governors like DeWine and Kemp, um, for example, as well as, uh, you know, most notably, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida really excelled. So they were able to take advantage of the environment. 
and candidates who kind of carried around that Trump brand with them, I think seriously suffered as a result of it. You know, Kermesita, you know, it seems like there was going to be this huge or perceived, I should say, wave that was going to occur, a red wave, and it really trickled out toward the end. But, you know, we think about there's the January 6th, but also the, the, the post-Dobbs decision. Do you think any of that, how do you think that played into this? And, you know, as you heard a lot of the conversation, it was January 6th, post-Dobbs, then there was inflation, crime, all these kind of cluttered issues. What do you think you saw uh, make some of these races a lot tighter than people anticipated? Or at least I should say the pollsters anticipated. <laughs> Well, I think from a from the Democratic perspective, um, I think for once in a long time, the Democrats treated many different demographics, you know, that usually vote with them, you know, black and brown voters, youth voters, women. They they treated them as persuadable voters, I think, then to also capture, you know, independent voters, disaffected Republicans and swing voters. I think many of these candidates realized that they needed to localize their messaging. And I think while the economy really mattered for many of these voters, which, you know, was kind of what everyone was saying was the number one, number one issue, you saw that this was not a cycle where one single issue was enough. I think that we saw in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and many other states they understood that abortion mattered to women and even to some men. And so they chose to focus on the economy and abortion. And I think in college towns and cities across the country, candidates understood that young voters care about the economy. Obviously, a lot of them are very concerned about like what their job prospects are going to be as they graduate. But they care just as much about the future of this country in terms of climate change, gun safety, student debt relief, and other top priorities. And I think in the Black community, the conversations, again, were like very local, very focused on the economy, which everyone's concerned about. But they also cared about protecting voting rights, abortion, uh, student debt relief, HBCU funding issues, and like and restorative justice, you know, which you saw the president um, do those marijuana pardons and that mattered in that community. And so I just think that, and then, and then, like you said, sitting in the background, there were like the democracy issues where, you know, I think people care about living in a country that doesn't have political violence and freedoms and rights taken away. And I think also just wanting, you know, like our leaders to have empathy for each other. And so I do think character was also on the ballot. And I think it's funny because, you know, Democrats were obviously criticized every day in the media for not having a unified message like the Republicans did and often do. But I think this time around, candidates knew what made sense for their districts and their states. And I think the president supported them down to not going to states where folks felt he was unpopular and would hurt them. You know, and I think while we point to a lot of the issues that Republicans had in terms of candidate quality. Um, I think we have to give some credit to to Democrats, right, that they understood that there were a mix of issues that were impacting different communities and that they needed to speak to every community differently. And I think when you then then when you like have all these kind of historic legislative wins behind them, like it just propelled them to another level. So I don't know. I think this was also an election where there were just like a lot of high information voters who were able to kind of like 
gather a lot of information and, and a lot of data on issues, and they were able to make decisions that were about a whole host of things that matter to them. Will, let me ask you, you're kind of the new member to the team, but you, so you're fresh off of the Hill and, you know, you worked for Lena McCarthy. I mean, how, how do you think he sees this? I mean, there was at one time talk of 30, 35 House members that were going to be giving a margin of majority to the Republicans. And now, you know, depending on how you look at it, because a lot of races, you know, 20 or 30 are still up in the air, it could be down to half a dozen or maybe 10. What, what, what do you think is going on? And, in, in that leadership office today and over the next few days trying to figure out what what do they got to do? Because they will probably be in the majority, obviously, but not as big as people have thought. That's right. That's right. Uh, ex- expectations have gotten pretty high by Election Day. Um, but I think if you zoom out and look at the broad sweep of the uh, this cycle, remember in June, uh, Republicans were at a high watermark. Um, if the election had been then, uh, they would have won 30, 35 seats. Um, but of course it wasn't. There was, there was a lot of game left to be played. You remember in August, uh, it looked like if the election were in August, Democrats would have held, held the majority and maybe, maybe easily held the majority, but there was still game to be played. And in the end, we got a result that was, uh, sort of between those two polls, slightly favoring Republicans. Um, and, and ultimately I think, I think, I think what's, What's on the mind of House Republicans is, you know, waiting for the dust to settle, uh, at which point they will be in the majority. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a glass half full guy. I, I think majorities come in all different shapes and sizes, large, medium, small, extra small. But ultimately, the majority is the majority in the House and uh, the gavels are the gavels and, and they don't come in different sizes. Uh, it's, a, it's a binary proposition. And, and I think ultimately, uh, Republicans will uh, and and uh, will prevail and and will be in the majority in the next Congress. And so, like I said, I'm I'm class half full about that. And I and I uh, I I noticed that that some of my Democrat colleagues are glass half full about this election too, in spite in spite <laughs> of uh, the the likely flip in the House. But uh, you know, I think that kind of speaks to what Carmen Cita mentioned, which is is there were a lot of local trends. There, there's a lot for Republicans to be happy about in this election. There's a lot for Democrats to be happy about in this election. Um, those micro trends uh, were, were, you know, there, there was abortion. Certainly, uh, Democrats talked a lot about January 6th and democracy. The economy obviously was a big factor in a lot of races as well, um, a countervailing factor. And, and Quality at the top of the ticket mattered. Uh, I think Carmen Cita mentioned Democrats doing well in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, hats off to you there. Um, and if you look at the top of the ticket, it was a mess in both races um, for Republicans um, or in both states. If you look at New York and Florida, we did really well with uh, with with competent, steady, high quality candidates at the top of the ticket. So um, I think that was another factor that contributed to this kind of swirl of, of factors where, you know, typically we look for one big macro trend in an election, and we just didn't get it this year. And uh, I think that's why we're, we're, uh, we're on both sides looking at the class half poll. Yeah, I just want to add to that, Mark. Go ahead, Brian. The, the focus seems to be on the outcome, not meeting expectations for Republicans. But, you know, just to build on what was said, I think, you know, whether the expectation meets, exceeds, or is beneath expectations, the practical outcome 
is significantly different. And whether you have a big majority of Republicans in the House or a small majority, the Democrat legislative agenda of the Biden administration is, you know, essentially halted. And the administration would have to um, shift gears dramatically to accommodate all the oversight that's going to take place in a Republican led house. So it, whether it's a ripple or a wave, the, the practical impact, I think, is is basically the same. And so I just think that's a point that's easy to overlook when everybody's talking about whether it was a wave or a ripple. And so I just want to add my you know sort of agreement to that point. A couple of points here. One. A lot of Democrats uh, believe the uh, Republican, the pollsters are talking points that, you know, the, the, the president's weakness, inflation, crime, immigration are going to destroy Democrats. We should have been listening more carefully to uh, the candidates, but also to some of the new voters. Look, I mean, some of the trends that we saw post Dobbs were uh, increase in registration in states like Pennsylvania, for example. And the question has always been, will these voters turn out? That's one. And a lot of them did. Will the young voters turn out? They did uh, for Democrats. So, yes, you know, taking um, Brian and Will's point that, you know, should Republicans take control of the House? Um, yes, everything, you know, will be put on halt. But when you have the majority, when you have the House and the Senate and the president, you pass an aggressive agenda that you were elected to do. But you also pass a bipartisan agenda in some places as well, like infrastructure and chips and so on. But looking two years down the road, depending on what the margin is, Democrats in the House have a very good chance of actually recapturing the majority. And voters, I think the message that voters sent is, yes, Dobbs was absolutely critical. Yes, the democracy was was under attack and we're going to protect it. But at the same time, they were saying, especially look at Michigan, they were saying, now go out and get something done. If Republicans are going to spend time on nothing but oversight and no um, bipartisan legislating, I think it makes the job for the Democrats much easier to regain the majority in 2024. Hermosito, let me jump to you in regards to because you know now we're we're going into kind of a different makeup, and let's just assume for for this discussion that the Senate is still fifty fifty Democrat control. Well, what does Leader Schumer do now with a House that's switched, and you have a uh, president that's still a Democrat, and the Senate's still fifty fifty? What, what's kind of the agenda? What is leadership's role here in Senator Schumer and? And I'm going to ask Brian about Senator McConnell here, but Senator Schumer's role, what does he do? Well, um, I, I like your scenario 50-50. <laughs> I knew you would. I had to play to your strength there. <laughs> yes, and I actually think that we'll gain. Um, but even if we gain, we all know that that's a very slim margin in the Senate. So, look, I think Majority Leader Schumer will do what he's always done, right? He'll try to find middle ground while protecting the things that his constituents and um, and the party find sacred, right? So he is the consummate dealmaker, and I think he will continue to try to work in a bipartisan manner, just as he did on the issues that Nadim just mentioned, infrastructure, chips, gun safety, veterans, he will continue to find ways to work with Leader McConnell and try to look for things that are less controversial 
that he thinks they can do together. You know, I think people wonder, like, will a child tax credit get done? There seemed to be a lot of support for things like that. But I think he's also going to fiercely protect programs like Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid programs that provide a safety net to our elderly and most vulnerable. And so I think when he can find ways to work with the Republicans, he will. And when there are issues that come up that are just not in alignment with with the core beliefs and agenda of the Democratic Party, he's going to fight them fiercely. And then obviously judges will continue to be a priority. I think whoever's in charge, that is always the case. And so uh, I think judges and and definitely getting administration appointees approved is going to continue to be a very, very high priority for him. Brian, what do you think? Um, McConnell's role? Will it change from what he's been doing the last couple of years, or do you think it's going to change up in some way with the House now? No, I think Leader McConnell is uh, committed to demonstrating to voters that Republicans can be entrusted with the levers of government. And whether we're in the majority or it's split or whatever the combination is, I think he'll try to, you know, to paraphrase former President Obama, not do dumb stuff. And, um, you know, wait for a a strong national candidate to emerge who can carry the party's uh, agenda into a presidential election. But in the meantime, you know, without the ability uh, with a sitting Democratic president to actually pass anything of significance um, along Republican lines, I think he'll be focused on just sort of the basics of, of governance. So, Will, as you were talking about the half glass full, I was trying to figure out was a shot glass or a 16-ounce uh, soda glass. But let me ask you this. If the vol- if the margin is thin, meaning half a dozen, uh, and you've seen some recent articles on the Freedom Caucus, what does McCarthy do here? What's his play in order to – is it just going to be oversight to satisfy the Freedom Caucus, or is it going to be an agenda? You know, you go back to the days of Ginrich, who had the contract to – for America, what's what's his what's his play here? Because he has some tough internal discussion, I'm sure, going on now. To the glass half full question first, I, I hope it's coffee. We're recording this in the morning, so I think that, would, <laughs> that would be ideal. It is uh, the morning. It is the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, five o'clock somewhere, though. Um, you know, I think Leader McCarthy is going to have a lot of conversations with a lot of his members over the course of the next few days, and, and he, he is going to ultimately have the vote uh, to become speaker, looking ahead to what he will do. You know, it's a very narrow majority, obviously, that's on the horizon for Republicans. And, and you know, I'll just make one note. The logistics of a narrow majority without proxy voting are, are precarious, because if a member is homesick or has a surgery and can't travel, or is absent for some reason, uh, that, that, that margin gets even narrower. And so just logistics of that will be a big undertaking for Leader McCarthy and, and, and his team and his deputies. And I think they're up to it, but uh, it, it's just a dynamic we haven't seen before uh, in, in the modern era because Democrats obviously have a narrow majority, but they have proxy voting, which allows full attendance regardless of the actual presence of members. So, uh, you know, that I would just I'd put a pin in that. Um, that's going to consume a lot of time, just sort of the logistics and management of the House. In terms of what they can accomplish, 
like I said, gavels only come in one size and, and what the House majority can do unilaterally is conduct oversight. So I, I, I think that's what uh, the Freedom Caucus members are focused on. It's what a lot of uh, base Republican voters are focused on. And so I think Republicans will rightly see that uh, as their mandate going into the next Congress and, and, and they'll be able to execute that on their own unilaterally in the House. And so I, I expect that to be front and center. In terms of legislative priorities, I, you know, I think there are some that uh, the Republicans will put forward in the hopes that uh, Democrats will join them. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll name a couple. I think, I think China and protecting supply chains and protecting our national security uh, is something that should and could be a bipartisan uh, issue in the next Congress. And I think it'll be a big focus for Republicans, it's a big focus during the campaign, and I think that'll continue. Leader McCarthy is committed to setting up a new uh, select committee to address China and the China threat. That'll, of course, be a bipartisan committee, uh, and, I, and I hope that there is bipartisan legislation that, that, that's a result of that work. It's important for the country that we do that. But, you know, there are other issues as well, and, and my Democrat colleagues might want to chime in on this. I, I think permitting and, and energy is a space where uh, there could be some agreement. Um, everybody is feeling it at the pump. Uh, you know, energy prices are going to be sky high for utility bills this winter. And you know, there were some bipartisan rumblings about permitting reform over the last few months. And I think that reflects interest on both sides, on the Republican side for more domestic energy production and on the Democrat side for quicker completion of green energy projects. And so I, you know, I think there could be uh, a bipartisan uh, agreement there on permitting if, if, if the sides come together. And of course, uh, in the last category I'll mention are the, the, the inevitable must-pass bills, and the, those ultimately have to be bipartisan regardless of the size of the majority in the House because it takes 60 votes in the Senate. And so uh, those packages uh, we're always going to require uh, negotiation and compromise, uh, and, and that'll be the case going forward. Yeah, let me ask this, and I know we're just about out of time, and I, you know, one thing we like at Brownstein, we not only talk about what's going on day-to-day in the trenches of, you know, Washington, D.C., and how to make sure our clients are taken care of, but also trying to understand what's going around us, but we like to always think about the future, so I'm going to ask you guys to put your crystal ball on, uh, on the table, and kind of look at it, and uh, this is the question of in 2024, it sure seems like, and I'll ask this to the Republicans on the team here first, DeSantis is, is running for president. And uh, the question is, is he really? And will Trump make the call in the next week or so? And who else might get into this race? And then to the Democrats, uh, will Biden run? And if not, uh, who will? And if he does run, will someone run against him in the Democratic primary? So, uh, Brian or Will, you want to take on the first one and tell me what you think? I'll just briefly say that, you know, there's a long list of Republicans who looked like they were inevitable two years out who ended up not having what it took. But I think after Tuesday's election, there's just no question that um, Governor DeSantis has established a coalition in Florida that is hugely um, appealing to those looking for a candidate who could overcome some of the headwinds that Republicans faced on Tuesday. And, and Will, you think the same thing? And do you think that uh, Trump's going to get in? But all signs point toward uh, a competitive primary on the Republican side. And I think competition is good. 
uh, and I, I welcome all comers, and we'll we'll see uh, how, how it works out. And uh, may the may the strongest candidate win. But I I agree with I agree with Brian about Florida and DeSantis. What a what a really impressive job he has done down there, and 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 you know it, it affected the House. Uh, I, I, the House majority, uh, the margin may be made in Florida. Ramosita, what do you think, in uh, Nadine? I, you know, I, I don't know what what President Biden will do in the end. I think as of right now, he is leaning towards running or it sounds like that is the, the decision he'll come to. And, you know, and I think I don't know what will happen. But I what I do believe is that um, while he's incredibly unpopular, his policies and positions are not. You know, I think I think he has accomplished incredible things through the legislation he's passed on climate, on equity issues, gun safety, uh, student debt relief. I just, I think the way that he has kind of secured our position again as a global leader is something I think a lot of Americans really are happy about. But I, you know, but I just think that people really are struggling with his age and can't, you know, get past that. Right. I think just a lot of people think that he's, you know, too old, you know, I think for a lot of people, he represents the past, but I think he really has been one of the most forward looking presidents and has been thinking about policies that are going to make the world and the country better for the next generation. And I think a lot of people appreciate that, but I think somehow um, can't reconcile kind of the age of the man with the work. And so it'll be interesting to see, looking at all of these factors, what decision he'll come to in the end. You know, I just think that that's kind of a, to be determined. And he himself has said he'll make that decision early next year. So I'm just going to respect that our incumbent and president, you know, has that, the, the right to decide to do that. And, um, that's it. So Nadine, what do you think? Do you think even if he runs, do you think there'd be any Democrat that steps to the plate to say they want to challenge him or what you're thinking? Yeah. I mean, if, if president Biden runs again, I don't believe, um, um, at least now any candidate would step up against them. I mean, you look at what he did. I mean, this election cycle, the party whose president is in power, um, usually loses four Senate seats and an average of 28 congressional seats. This has been an 86-year precedent in what he succeeded. This time around, you know, in addition to the issues that we were grappling with, make him pretty formidable. Um, in, in addition, you know, if you have a, a Republican House, um, I think that would be pretty pretty strong contrast going forward. And, and frankly, no matter what you know what they try to pass if it's not signed into law um, i think that's that's i mean that's the measure of, of success but one thing though that we can't forget that was accomplished i, mean, I think democrats and republicans would agree and, I, and i'd like to, to 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 see if if this is a something that we that we do agree on is that our democracy held this election people came out to vote the votes are being counted and we're moving forward. Uh, this is a far cry from 
2020 and, and what occurred. So um, with that, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's a good sign for, uh, for all, all voters um, and all voters of all political stripes. Yep, I think you're right, Nadim. I think that's one area we can all agree on. We have the elections moved forward, and uh, we're only down to a couple states to clear out those numbers. And at the end of the day, Congress gets back in session in January, and the work of the country moves forward. So we never have enough time to have these conversations. But I want to thank our panelists, Nadine and Brian and Carmesita and Will, for participating. And once again, this is a podcast by Brownstein, and we love doing these. And again, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.